The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to introduce our guest, Dr. Melanie Joy. She is a Harvard-educated psychologist specializing in the psychology of eating animals, social transformation, and relationships. She is widely recognized as a thought leader best known for her pioneering work developing her theory of carnism. Her analyses have helped explain why people engage in non-relational behaviors, behaviors that harm other people, animals, the planet, and themselves, as well as how to change this pattern. She is the award-winning author of six books, including the best-selling book we'll be discussing today titled, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. Dr. Joy, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Melinda. It's such a pleasure to be here. Let me ask you how you, you're a Harvard-educated psychologist, how did you become interested in food? Well, it was really through my own personal experience. Like many people, I grew up with a dog who I loved, like a family member, and I also grew up eating animals. And over the course of so many years and so many meals, I just never thought about how strange it was that I could pet my dog with one hand while I ate a pork chop with the other, you know, a pork chop that had once been an animal who was at least as intelligent and sentient as my dog. I just didn't make that connection between the food on my plate and the living being it once was. And it wasn't until 1989 that all of this started to change. I ate a hamburger that ended up having been contaminated with Campylobacter, and I wound up hospitalized on intravenous antibiotics. I was just incredibly sick. And so after that experience, I just stopped eating meat. And it wasn't because of any conscious decision about ethics toward animals or anything like that. You know, it's just when you're so sick, you're disgusted by the last thing you ate. And so I became a vegetarian sort of by accident. And in the course of learning how to cook for myself, you know, how to live as a vegetarian, I, of course, stumbled upon information about animal agriculture. And what I learned just shocked and horrified me. I I, I couldn't believe the extent of the suffering and harm, what was happening to animals. I, I couldn't believe the impact on the environment, public health, my own body, and I was just really taken aback, and so I, I quickly became vegan. What shocked me in some ways, though, even more, was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. They would say things like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, or they'd call me a crazy vegan hippie propagandist. And these were my friends and family members. There were people just like myself, just like I had been when I had been eating animals, you know, rational, compassionate people. And I I became very curious about how it was possible for compassionate people who really cared about rationality to just stop thinking and feeling when it came to this issue of eating animals. And so I ended up enrolling in a doctoral program in psychology. I studied the psychology of 
violence and nonviolence more broadly, and then I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of eating animals. And this was what led me to identify what I came to call carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. Hmm. Did you coin this word carnism? Yes, I coined this word in the process of doing the research that I was just describing. The best way to really explain carnism is through a little thought experiment. So just imagine that you are biting into a juicy hamburger and your dining companion turns to you and tells you that the meat in that burger isn't actually beef. It comes from golden retrievers. Just take a moment to reflect on your thoughts and feelings. So what you had just seen or thought of as food, you now think of as a dead animal. Probably what you just felt was delicious, you now feel is disgusting. And rather than continue eating the burger, you probably want to throw it at the trash and maybe even take to the streets in protest. So carnism, as I said, is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. And because carnism is organized around violence, meat cannot be procured without killing, and egg and dairy production cause extensive harm to animals, it runs counter to most people's core values. These are the values of caring or compassion and justice or fairness. Most people would never willingly support intensive, extensive, and completely unnecessary violence toward other sentient beings. And yet, most people do support this violence multiple times a day through their food choices. So what systems such as carnism need to do is to use a set of psychological defense mechanisms. What these defense mechanisms do is they distort our perceptions of those animals we've learned to classify as edible and of the products procured from their bodies. These distorted perceptions disconnect us from our natural emotions, most notable of which is our empathy. So we end up acting against our own values and our own interests and the interests of others without even realizing what we're doing. Mm. So I am going to be playing a little bit of the devil's advocate because I remember watching probably a National Geographic series about animals in the wild, right? And how the lion will pounce on its prey and tear into the flesh. Mm -hmm. And you realize that, yes, there is violence in the world. And it's horrible to watch. I remember as a child being, gosh, taken aback by just how violent the interactions of animals were in the wild. Does that somehow justify the violence in our own food system? Well, number one, our own food system is a construct that is very recent to human evolution and human development, the way that we produce food today. Number two, we're not lions. We're not carnivores. And we're not most people are not eating animals because they have to. This is not a matter of survival. There's a difference psychologically, you know, for example, between fighting off somebody who's attacking you and who's going to kill you, causing violence and harm to them. There's a big difference between doing that psychologically than following somebody down the street and violently attacking them because it gives you pleasure. And so, you know, what I'm talking about here with carnism is people being conditioned to engage in practices that they would probably choose not to 
if they were fully aware of not only the reality of what was happening to the animals and to some extent to the environment in their own body, but also if they were aware of how they were conditioned by the system that is carnism. And I don't mean to say that humans don't engage in in violent behaviors. Of course we do, and turn on the news, you know, open the Internet, and you'll see it everywhere. What I'm pointing out is that we are actually being conditioned to support violence without knowing that we are supporting violence. And we also have to be really careful not to use this justification, well, it's natural, other animals do it. People have eaten animals for millennia, so therefore it's the natural thing to do. Because people have done lots of things for millennia. We've been murdering other humans and raping for as long as we have been eating animals, and yet we don't use the longevity of these practices or the fact that other animals may engage in them as a justification for us to continue doing them today. Right. And you talk about the three ends of justification that you've touched on here. And I was trying to reflect on those in my own life. You know, it's so easy to say, well, my grandparents ate meat, so I eat meat, or were defined as being omnivores, as both plant and meat eaters. We have the enzymes to break these food substances down. Therefore, isn't it natural to eat meat? But you're taking this a step farther, really, and forcing us to be aware of the larger industrial system that truly inflicts pain way beyond our awareness. Absolutely. And and one thing that's important to be aware of when it comes to carnism is carnism is, as I said, it's a violent system or a system of oppression, essentially. And it is also what's called a dominant system. That means that it is so widespread that it's invisible. It's basically, its tenets, its teachings are basically woven through the structure of society to shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, and so on and so forth. So when people study medicine, they're actually studying carnistic medicine, nutrition. It's typically carnistic nutrition because this is what we have inherited. When we're born into a dominant system, such as carnism, we inevitably internalize that system. We learn to look at the world through the lens of that system. And in my book, I write about these various defense mechanisms that keep the system intact, that keep the system alive. And the key word here is defense in defense mechanisms. Carnism causes us to feel defensive whenever our essentially our sense of our rightness to continue eating animals might be challenged. And most people aren't even aware that this process is happening. In other words, carnism conditions us to resist, defend against any information that could help get out of the carnistic box we don't even realize we're in. So often somebody will simply say, I'm a vegan, and they'll find that this wall comes up against the message that they might be trying to share. As I explained, this was my experience when I first became a vegan uh, a number of years ago. And there are all sorts of negative stereotypes that essentially a form of shoot the messenger, uh, mm-hmm. negative stereotypes around vegans, right? If we shoot the messenger, we don't have to take seriously the implications of their message. And so one of the defenses I talk about in my book, as you mentioned, are the three ends of justification. The way that we learn to justify eating animals is basically by learning to believe that the myths of eating animals are the facts of eating animals. And there's a, a vast mythology surrounding eating animals, but they all fall under these three ends. 
eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary. And of course, these same arguments have been used to justify eating animals throughout human history. These same arguments have been used to justify other violent practices throughout human history, from male dominance to heterosexual supremacy. Yeah, this is so interesting to me because I'm I'm reflecting on hunter-gatherer kinds of populations. And I'm thinking about movements today that evaluate the importance of animals on the landscape in terms of returning to soil health. So the grazing animals, the bison say that once roamed our prairies, and even the deer that exist in our environment where if left unchecked, they would chomp through our gardens and start showing up on the streets, you know, in mass. So help me think through some of this, because I know our listeners are probably thinking the same thing, that isn't hunting somehow necessary to maintain a balance of man and animal on the planet? Yeah, well, I'm glad that you raised this question. And what we're talking about here is, is not hunting to begin with. It's animal agriculture is, I think it's about somewhere between 94 and 97 percent, the percentage changes. But of animal products or carnistic products that make it to our plates come from animals who were raised in intensive confinement. Right. That's just the reality. So, that, so to your question, though, and people do ask this question quite often, well, you know, what about hunting? If we don't hunt and kill animals, what's going to happen? That Maybe these non-human populations are going to, to overrun the human population or damage, you know, as you said, damage property. This is a much bigger conversation, but the primary reason that any kinds of animal populations are not kept in balance is because humans have encroached upon an ecosystem that has thrown it out of balance in the first place. And it's really, I think, telling that our relationship with animals is so problematic that so often the first go-to in many of our minds is that we need to kill them when a problem arises. Very rarely do we have a nuanced conversation about how we can manage problems between humans and other animals in natural settings without going to how do we eliminate a certain number of animals to protect the interests of the humans here. All of that said, I do think it's important that we recognize that what I'm talking about here, that we keep, you know, that I focus on what I'm talking about here, which is, which is eating animals when eating animals is really not necessary. Now, for some people who are economically disadvantaged and they're not in a position to make their food choices freely, clearly they can't choose whether they eat animals or they eat plants. But for the many people who are now in a position to decide what they eat, I think it's very important for them to really be informed, and not just informed about the consequences of animal agriculture, but to be informed about the system that's carnism and how it has shaped their perception so profoundly. Because without this awareness, people can't make their food choices freely. Without awareness, there is no free choice. Mm -hmm. That is a beautiful and very important statement. 
We are halfway through, so let me just take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Melanie Joy. She is a Harvard-educated psychologist. She specializes in the psychology of eating animals, as well as social transformation and relationships. She is also the eighth recipient of the Ahisma Award, which is previously given to the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela. It was given to her for her work on global nonviolence. She also received both the Peter Singer Prize and the Empty Cages Prize for her work developing strategies to reduce the suffering of animals. Dr. Joy, I want to go back to something that is very important. And that is this prevalence of factory farming. And you're right, well over 90% of the meat we eat and don't think twice about its source comes from these horrific factory farms. And I have had the privilege of interviewing many individuals who have identified all of the flaws related to factory farms, not the least of which is harm to animals or the horrific abuse of animals within that system. Then, of course, there are the environmental abuses. There are all of these externalities that cost taxpayers billions of dollars to cover up what the industrial system profits from. So in your TED Talk that you gave in Munich, you and I believe in some other video sources on your website, and I'll provide a link to those, you have some difficult-to-watch film clips. I believe the source was Mercy for Animals. And we get to see inside what happens at, on some of these farms. And they're very, I hate to even call them farms, they're factories. But it's very difficult for the average consumer to pull back those curtains and see what really goes on inside. I think Michael Pollan said, if these factories were forced to have glass walls, nobody would be eating meat. So I think this is really important for people to question where their food comes from. This brings me to the Certified Humane Label. I have been promoting eating less meat but better meat. Better meaning where animals are raised in a humane system where they have one bad day in which they lose their life. Tell me your thoughts about this. Sure. Well, I actually think the quote, slaughterhouses have glass walls. I think that was Paul McCartney who said that. Oh, Paul McCartney. Thank you for the correction. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was a long time ago, interestingly, and when he was talking about vegetarianism. And I think you're absolutely right bringing this up. For most people, factory farms, even if the violence in factory farms were 90% reduced, it would still be 10% too much for the average person, which is a good thing because people care. This new-ish phenomenon of what's called humane meat is really interesting. I think, you know, on one hand, it's an indicator that most of us really, we care. And as people become increasingly aware of the horrors of, quote-unquote, factory farming, they are increasingly wanting to withhold their support from it. And so enter this idea of humane meat. And the challenge with, I think, although this is a positive thing that people want to do less harm and promote a better way of eating, humane meat is really a, a contradiction in terms that we can only recognize when we step outside of the carnistic box. When we imagine, I think for most people anyway, it would be considered cruel to slaughter a, a happy, healthy golden retriever just because people like the way her legs taste. And yet when the exact same thing is done to individuals of other species, 
animal agribusiness calls it humane. So I think it's really important for us to recognize that carnism is, in fact, still at work here. And even in these farms, the animals are still sent to the same slaughterhouses, typically. And some of the same practices are still carried out, such as de-beaking birds, cutting birds' beaks off without anesthesia. So although I do believe that it's a sign that people really do care and they want to do less harm, that we even have a label, humane meat. I also believe that it's really important for people to get very, get really get informed, find out about what these farms look like for yourself, and ask yourself, would I support this same thing being done to an individual of a species that I don't think of typically as edible? And in some ways, it's almost worse to kill an animal who does have a positive life or a good life because it's a life they want to continue living and in which they may have formed bonds with other animals who then grieve the loss. Yeah, these are such important things for us to consider as we navigate our food system that must change in the face of climate change. You mention, however, that our perceptions of how we eat is truly influenced by our culture. And as a psychologist, I feel like you have great insight into how we can best change the way we think. So what are your thoughts on that? How do we get to the core of our perceptions? How do we change those perceptions? Yeah, well, that's that's a really great question. I think the first step is awareness, really. The first step is becoming aware of the mentality itself. So, you know, the mentality that we espouse. And at carnism.org, we have a lot of resources that describe, in, in this case, the mentality of carnism, but, but even more, because what's really interesting and important and hopeful, I think, is that the very same mentality that causes us to disconnect from our empathy for animals, that causes us to harm animals, is the mentality that causes us to harm other humans. It is a mentality that reflects a real disconnection, essentially. If you look at some of the most pressing problems, not only in our lives, but also in our world, such as poverty, uh, war, racism, patriarchy, animal exploitation, climate change, and so on, you can see that these problems really share a common denominator. And this common denominator is relational dysfunction or dysfunctional ways of relating between social groups, between individuals, between humans and the animals, between humans and the planet, between us and ourselves. And so what this means is that healthy ways of relating, relational function, building what I call relational literacy, which is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating, is an antidote. It is a way to work to transform all of these problems simultaneously. And so one of the things that that all of us can do is to build awareness, to build awareness of the specific, the mentality that's supporting a specific oppression. You know, here we're talking about carnism. And also to build awareness of relational literacy, to learn how to practice healthy ways of relating. And this is not rocket science. This is something that can be learned by anybody who wants to learn how to do so. There's lots of information out there on how we can change the way that we think, challenge some of our existing assumptions so that we can relate to others and ourselves in a way that's healthy and a way that helps foster a sense of connection, mutual connection and security between us 
and that helps to build a better world. We also have a lot of resources on building relational literacy, and anybody who's interested can find great information out there. Well, I'm really glad you bring this up, because I think as our country has become ever more divided, we need these tools for building quality relationships to heal from many ills that are facing our society. I want to bring forth, you mentioned carnism.org. I want to also mention melaniejoy.org, which is your personal website that talks about this relational literacy. And it's a term I had not heard before. We just have a few minutes left. So what are the steps or some ideas that we can take moving forward to become better aware, number one, and number two, to develop more functional relationships? Well, I would say in terms of building awareness, as I said, Carnism Dordori has a lot of information and reducing, I really think that a key step is to not look at the issue of around eating animals as either you're fully vegan and you're part of the solution or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem. I think it's really important to appreciate that people can and often are part of the solution, even if they're not fully vegan themselves yet. People can use their influence to aid in the transformation of carnism, to really help raise awareness of the issue, and also people can just be as vegan as possible. And that's what I always recommend people try to do, to be as vegan as possible and support the efforts that are being done out there. So build your own awareness, raise your own awareness, and help support efforts that are working to transform carnism. In terms of your question about building relational literacy, which really is the underpinning of all of this that we're talking about here today, we're talking about changing our relationship with farmed animals. The most frequent and intimate way most of us relate to animals is through consuming their potties. So, of course, decreasing your consumption, being as vegan as possible is a step. And on both of the websites, I have a video called Formula for a Better World. And in this video, I talk about one simple formula that we can apply to all forms of relating, whoever we're relating to. And this applies also to communication. And and this is the formula. It's the foundation of healthy relating and relational literacy. In a healthy, when we relate in a healthy way, what that means is that we practice integrity, that we practice compassion and justice toward the other person. We treat them with respect and we honor their dignity. That means we don't think of or treat them as any less worthy of being treated with respect than anyone else. That's the formula. Practice integrity, honor dignity, and this leads to a greater sense of connection and security. This formula, like most things in life, exists on a spectrum. It's not either or. You know, one can do this to a greater or lesser degree. But if you look at your own life, your own relationships, your own communications, you know, communication is the primary way we relate, you'll probably notice that those that you find most connecting, where you feel most secure, that feel most healthy, reflect integrity, and honor dignity. And when you're in a difficult situation, you know, you're feeling tension, you can just pause and ask yourself the question, how do I feel in this situation? Does this interaction reflect my integrity? Does the other person seem like they're practicing integrity toward me? And so on and so forth. And now, I tried to summarize something in, you know, that probably should have taken 20 minutes in 20 or so seconds, but hopefully the basic idea gets across. And This is really the foundation of healthy ways of relating. And I have a book called Getting Relationships Right, which is really a a one-stop guide to building relational literacy. That's fantastic. 
We've got to close, unfortunately, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Melanie Joy, Harvard-educated psychologist specializing in the psychology of eating animals, social transformation, and relationships. She is the author of a extremely provocative and interesting book titled Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. It's an introduction to carnism. And there is a fabulous section. If you are looking for a book for a book club, there's a book discussion section in the back to further explore our deep-seated feelings about what and why we do things in life. So thank you very much for all of your wise insights, and thank you for being my guest. Oh, thank you so much, Melinda. It's been a pleasure.